So what is um, what does it mean by living waters? What was the Old Testament concept of living waters? What are some different kinds of bodies of water? Seas, okay, rivers, what else? Ocean, creeks, ponds. Yeah, so what's the difference between something like a pond that you could just have in the back of your property if you have enough land versus a stream? Yeah, what do you usually see ponds in Michigan? Or if you drive down Ohio, it seems like everybody got one in their backyard. Yeah, a lot of, well, in a pond, no. It's a lot of algae and just sort of sits there. And if you don't have something to, like a, a fountain or whatever, it just sort of sits there and grows algae and gets mucky. But if you have a stream running through it, what happens? It's moving. Or if there's a spring that feeds the pond, it's a different kind of a thing. And so when he says living waters, I think the idea is that the water is flowing. Now, in the present moment, Jerusalem isn't tall enough for any sort of underground springs to sort of turn into a river flowing down the mountain from Jerusalem over to the Mediterranean or, or eastward. I'm trying to think eastward to the, um, yeah, let me look at a map here just for a second. So we got Jerusalem. Uh, eastward would be to what is currently the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea. And then westward toward uh, the Mediterranean. So, um, but that, again, doesn't currently exist. Jerusalem is taller than some of the surrounding areas, but there's not rivers running from Jerusalem. Uh, let's read verse 9. Who wants to read verse 9? Okay. Now, there is a sense in which God rules over the earth, even if people don't acknowledge him. But this seems to be a situation in which people are actually acknowledging God. And we have not seen, I mean, Jesus comes and the Romans crucify him. And some of the people believe in him, but not everybody. And then later throughout history, I mean, um, there's that moment in the Middle Ages in which they try to set up the Holy Roman Empire. And some people have spoken of it somewhat sarcastically and said it was not holy and it was not Roman and it was not an empire. Uh, there's this idea that the whole earth has never been acknowledging God as the king. But in this day it says they will. All right, let's read verses 10 and 11. Who wants to read those? Mike? All the land will be changed into a plain from Gaz, from Geba to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hanan to the king's People will live in it, and there will be no longer be a curse, for Jerusalem will dwell in security. All right, so when it says all the land will be changed into a plain, um, 
it's kind of this idea of the land being smoothed out. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and again, that's a geographical change that we don't currently see. That's significant, but what's more significant is verse 11, there will no longer be a curse. This word curse is used when the people come into the land, uh, what they put on um, the city of Ai. God said it's under the Old or the, the King James uses the word the ban. Other versions have the idea of curse or, or this idea of it being forbidden. And that word is used in a couple of different ways, maybe three or four different ways. Um, it's the idea of devoted, so it's set apart to God. But usually in a negative sense, it's devoted to destruction, after which it becomes the possession of God's people. And so there's this idea that the people of Israel come into the land. God has said this city no longer belongs to the people who are in the land. They're going to be defeated and destroyed. You are going to conquer them. They're going to be wiped out. And all of the possessions of that belong to God. Remember um, what happened with Achan. He was supposed to uh, not keep anything for himself. But he sees a piece of clothing and he sees a bar of gold and he keeps those for himself. And he and his whole family are put to death because of his sin. And so when that takes place... Um, the reason that takes place is because of that all the possessions were supposed to be devoted to God. But the, the people, after it was devoted to God, burned with fire, the people then rebuilt and lived in that spot. And so when this says there will no longer be any curse, why did the curse come on the Canaanites? Why did the, the ban, the being devoted to destruction, why did that happen to the Canaanites? Okay, which was an aspect of what? Idolatry. So their rejection of God, their idolatry that continued to escalate in various horrific ways, that was the reason God devoted them to destruction. If there's no longer going to be a curse, for Jerusalem will dwell in security, what does that mean, verse 11 here? There'll be no more of a destruction. Why? If the cause for the destruction of the Canaanites was their idolatry, and there will no longer be any more destruction, what does that mean? Braden? They're following God. Now, there's a place, I think, in the Psalms where it talks about the nations giving feigned obedience to God. Uh, we'll talk about that more when we get to uh, verses 16 through 19. But... Um, I'm, I'm not arguing that there will be no sin, but there will be no open idolatry and rebellion against God. It won't be tolerated in this day is what it seems to be indicating. Yeah, Rob. Yeah, quick aside on that, because there are a lot of people who, um, who f misinterpret that. So um, there were people that wrongly, in the history of the United States and other nations, tried to say that applied to a certain group of people ethnically. Um, and it applied to 
the people of Canaan not for their ethnicity but because of their idolatry and because they're following in the same kind of uh, pattern as um, him who um, there's di- there's disagreement about what was what he did with um, right so there's disagreement did he just go and it was shameful for him to see his father passed out naked in the trunk in the in the in the tent drunk to see his father passed out drunk in the tent sorry I'm having a hard time talking here they didn't have cars back then he wasn't passed out of the trunk but on a serious note Noah is drunk he's passed out in his tent Ham comes in and and it says when Noah woke up he knew what his son had done to him so there's people with some good basis think that he did something to sort of like assert his superiority over his father, some sort of, um, some sort of uh, sexual or inappropriate act, and it doesn't go into it. But whatever happened, Shem and Japheth come, walk in backwards, cover up Noah with his cloak to cover their father's shame, and then... Uh, when Noah wakes up, he pronounces the curse. But he pronounces it on Canaan, and that's prophetic because the people of the land of Canaan are going to be people who commit all sorts of immorality. Murder, child sacrifice, all sorts of immorality connected with temple prostitution and all those sorts of things. Their, their gods were gods of um, sexual perversion and violence. And so that is, I think, why God pronounces that curse. So, in this instance, it's, I think, saying there's not going to be that same kind of curse because there's not going to be open rebellion. Think about the history of Israel. They, all throughout their history, before the exile, they keep worshiping the gods of the nations around them. They have uh, shrines set up to Ashtoreth, female goddesses of fertility. They have temples or little things set up to Baal and to Dagon and to Molech and all these other pagan gods. And they keep importing gods. In this instance, in this day, that's not going to be the case anymore. Now it says there's a plague against the people who war against Jerusalem in verses 12 through 15. Who wants to read those for us? 12 to 15? Robert, thank you. Okay. Uh, what are some things that are significant about what it's describing here? Okay. What are what are people afraid of in our day when it comes to warfare? Okay, chemical warfare or or nuclear or plagues like biological weapons. Okay. Something you can't see. Right. What's interesting about this is 
we are afraid of those things because we're worried about another nation doing it to us. But what does it say here in verse 12? This will be the plague with which who will strike the people? The Lord. We'll get to that. We're just looking at this context right now. Yeah. So here's the, here's the point we're trying to get at. I'm trying to get at. People will say, well, is this a nuclear bomb? Is this biological warfare? Whatever. For the purposes of what it's describing here, it doesn't matter. All it's saying is God is going to ensure that this judgment takes place against these nations that have gathered against his people. So think back to what you see earlier in the Old Testament. What did God say um, to various leaders of Israel at moments when they were overwhelmed in battle? Who was going to fight for them? God was going to fight for them. What happened when... uh, different armies like Assyria or uh, there was one time I think when the Syrians came up against Jerusalem in the days of Ahab and I think it was Elisha and he had a servant there and they thought they were going to be conquered and what happened look at verse 13 what happened they fought against each other same kind of thing God had done that before God was going to do it again the people are belonging to God God is claiming them as his people, they're worshiping God, and God, again, keeps the promises that he made earlier in the Old Testament to fight for them, to confuse their enemies, to destroy their enemies who come up against them. They didn't need, and, um, you know, in the present moment, what has all the, the chatter in the news been off and on for however long? Israel is secure because they have, what do they call it, Iron Shield or something? Yeah, the Iron Dome. Yeah, so they have that, so that protects them. What is this saying? Saying, forget all that. God is the one who has to protect Israel. She trusts in her own strength that will fail, which, again, without jumping too far forward, because I said we need to finish the chapter, if they are trusting in those things and then they are conquered by their enemies anyway, but then God comes to defend them, what is that going to result in? People are going to realize they have to believe in God and not in themselves. The plague also strikes various beasts of burden or war animals. Uh, Different nations would ride on horses or camels or all those things. They would have the other animals to provide for them. If their food supply is cut off and their transportation is destroyed, they they fail. Yeah. Uh, Just the one thing I when you read verse 12, first thing that came to my mind as I'm listening to it is leprosy, because that's what happened. They had to fall off. I thought this was another one. Sure. I think that's a picture that they would have um, they would have probably thought of something like leprosy, but this seems to be much more accelerated. Leprosy takes years to kill you, and this is something that seems to happen almost instantaneously. But yeah, there is a parallel there. Just I think this is a much greater and more severe thing. Um, let's keep reading, then we'll do some New Testament tie-ins. Uh, verses 16 through 19, someone want to read those, Bob? Egypt does not go up, nor Amethyst, and no rain will fall on them. It will be a 
that hill up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This will be the punishment of Egypt, and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. All right. Uh, some people have said this can't possibly be in the future because it talks about celebrating the Feast of Booths and we don't need the Old Testament feasts anymore and all those sorts of things. One of the things that I was reading made an interesting point. Passover's significance was fulfilled in Jesus. He is the lamb who was killed to deal with God's wrath against his people. Um, the Feast of Pentecost, is there anything significant associated with that in terms of what happens with the, with the church or, or whatever else in the history of the New Testament? Sure. Yeah. But was there any such similar fulfillment or or New Testament significant event associated with the Feast of Booths? There's basically nothing about it said in the New Testament. Not nothing. Very few things. There's no significant historical event attached to it. If Passover has the death of Christ associated with it, and if Pentecost has the giving of the Holy Spirit associated with it, there doesn't seem to be a corresponding fulfillment, association, significance to the Feast of Booths. What was the Feast of Booths? Anybody remember? What was, the, what was it they would do? They were supposed to remember their time in the wilderness. They built the tents, temporary structures, whatever exactly they looked like, and they would be out in the wilderness, but what would they do? They would feast like it was a time of celebration. Passover was a time of gathering and there was significance to it, but it was very sober. Pentecost was a time of gathering, but there was also more of an element of sobriety to it, whereas the Feast of Booths or Ingathering or Sukkoth, it's got a lot of different terms depending on if you're translating the Hebrew or whatever, um, was a time of celebration and rejoicing that God had provided the harvest and sustained them through another year and all those sorts of things. So, what is unique about what's happening here in verse 16? Everybody's doing it. Not just the people of Israel, but all the nations. So, there seems to be an expansion of this idea of gathering to honor God and rejoice in His provision and all those sorts of things to include the other nations of the earth. And if they do not, what's the consequence? No rain. If you don't acknowledge that God is the one who brings the rain, then you will have no rain and you will have no harvest with which to celebrate. Because you refuse to celebrate the harvest God provided for you. Let's read 20 and 21 and I'll try to tie it all together here. Let's read 20 and 21. Devin?
All right. What's the significance about bells being dedicated as holy to the Lord or cooking pots being like something in the temple? Okay, yeah, they're, they're, you know, you wouldn't normally think your cast iron skillet is as, is as devoted to God as the special uh, instruments that are used in the temple, but here they are. You wouldn't think that the bells on the horses are as significant as bells or decorations on the robes of the priests as they go about their business before God, but here they are. So the idea is that the whole earth is dedicated to the Lord. Now, this word Canaanite, some, uh, I don't know if it would say versions. I don't know if it's alternate translation. I need to do more looking into this. Or if it's just a um, certain manuscripts have one word versus the other. But it's possible that the word there is merchant instead of Canaanite, um, which would be directed toward an activity as opposed to a group of people. We can talk about the significance of that more later. Again, I need to do a little bit more study on it. But... This picture that's painted here, if we look at the fullness of the picture, is it something that we can say has taken place to this day? I, I really struggle to see this having been fulfilled at any point in history. Um, which then, and now's the moment when we can think about what does the New Testament say about it, um, There are glimpses of what we see in, for example, Matthew 24. Matthew 24 talks about this idea of Jesus saying, um, let's see here. It says in Matthew 24, 15, when you see the abomination of desolation. And then a little bit later, it says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. And then it says, the sign of the Son of Man will come forth. He will send forth his angels and gather. And then it talks about, um, uh, let's see here. Verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in His glory, chapter 25, verse 31, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered and He will separate them. We see a description um, in first, or sorry, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians 1, we think about 1 Thessalonians 4, but uh, we should look at 1 Thessalonians 5. It talks about a day when... The, it will come like a thief in the night, but you will not be overtaken by that destruction. Second Thessalonians 1 says that uh, God will give relief to you who are afflicted when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those, to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. And then in chapter 2, He talks about the mystery of lawlessness and He says in verse 8, That lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of His mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of His coming. 
And then um, if we, uh, let's see, Second Peter, well, let's skip that for now. Let's go to um, Revelation. There is a description. I don't know if this is the one you were thinking about, Bob, but it talks about when the trumpet is uh, slain that there are, um, let's see here, uh, chapter 9, verse 2, he opened up the bottomless pit and smoke went up like the smoke of a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. And tying into the Joel 2 reference, out of the smoke came locusts. They were told not to hurt the grass or any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God. And they tormented for five months. Um, if we keep going, and there's tons of things in Revelation, but for sake of time, Revelation chapter 20, Satan is thrown into the abyss and sealed for a thousand years. And... Um, it talks about the first resurrection, and then in verse 7, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and come out to deceive the nations and gather them together for the war. And they surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil and the beast and the false prophet were tormented day and night forever after being thrown into it. Here's the... The, uh, the thing that I think is confusing when we think about this, if we look just at Revelation, it seems like there is peace and then there's a battle. But if we look at Zechariah 14, it looks like there's a battle, then there's peace. Um, and the way that I would say that those two fit together is that it seems there's a gathering of the nations to against Jerusalem. God wipes out that first army, establishes peace, Christ reigns, uh, Paul says in Acts 17, there's one who's appointed to judge the world, Jesus Christ. Um, he reigns, and then Satan is released, stirs up another army. There's the immediate obliteration of that army, and then the eternal state begins. This potentially answers questions like, why are there nations who don't believe in God but are subservient to God being described in Zechariah? Either forget about it, God didn't make it happen, so it's never going to happen, or it takes place during a period of time after Christ has come to earth, but before the final battle. Now, people argue about the timelines and all those sorts of things, and there's lots of things we could discuss about this, but here is the focus that I think Zechariah is saying to the people of Israel. Zechariah is saying to the people of Israel, again, um, thinking about this in the days of Josiah, he is calling them to repent. Remember chapter 3, woe to her who is rebellious and defiled the tyrannical city. He's calling them to repent, but he's also holding out promises of how he's going to work eventually. So there's a message of repentance, there's a promise of deliverance, but it's a promise of deliverance that is associated with them stopping their trust in themselves they're not trusting in their horses and chariots and armies and all those sorts of things because in the middle of chapter 14, God obliterates all those things of their enemies. God can defeat their enemies who have all those things. Their efforts to, to attain victory by those things are going to fail. In the moment when it seems all hope is lost, God is going to deliver his people. So God is saying, I am faithful. You need to trust me. You need to repent. You need to follow me. There's a glorious future I'm holding out to you, but you will not participate in it 
if you stand as my enemy, you're going to be part of those who experience my judgment in the great and terrible day of the Lord. And so if we, if we only look at the judgment part of it, it'd be very discouraging. If we only look at the promise part of it, the glorious future, it would not have the effect that it's supposed to do. But Zechariah puts both of these things together and says, you need to repent, but God is faithful. Stop trusting yourselves, but God can deliver you. Now is going to be difficult and the exile is going to be terrible, but there's a day coming when God is going to accomplish and fulfill all his promises. So that's the really short version. <laughs> Any quick questions or things in the last couple of minutes we have before we wrap up? Yeah, David. Um, maybe. Um, so there's people who would say we still have to celebrate all of the feasts today. Um, I guess I would say if you say we should celebrate the Passover today as the Israelites did it, my struggle with that is it becomes very similar to the Roman Catholic concept that we are sacrificing Christ over and over again. At best, we're doing a historical ritual that has no necessity. At worst, we're performing something that God specifically said don't do any longer because it's already been completed. The thing with Pentecost, I don't think the argument is quite as strong, but I think there's a good argument to be made. It's not necessary because God said, this was the day of Pentecost, the significance of it. Now you look back and this is when I established my church. The Feast of Booths, I think, would fall into a similar category as the Sabbath. And here's, here's what I would say. If we say we have to keep the Sabbath for us to be right with God, I would say as people who, as far as I know, are not Israelites, that's not true because it was a command that he gave to the Israelites. However, there is an important point to be made that the significance of the Sabbath still remains and it's, it's, it hasn't been fulfilled in the way that God set it out to be, which is what Hebrews talks about. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The rest that's looked forward to is anticipated in the Sabbath. And so if someone said, I should observe the Sabbath today because I'm looking to that future rest, I wouldn't say, I think you're a terrible person, you hate Jesus, you're not a Christian. I would say, I don't think we're commanded to observe it the way the Israelites were, but there is a future significance of it. So if someone said it would fall in the category like Romans 14, um, who observes this day, who doesn't observe that day. Same thing with the Feast of Booths. If someone says, we should celebrate the Feast of Booths, we're going to go live in a tent, we're going to eat food, we're going to contemplate God, I'm not going to say that they're a terrible person, they're not Christians, all those sorts of things. If they make it a test of salvation, I think that's when it becomes a problem. If you are re-crucifying Jesus or forgetting and ignoring all the significance of what has happened at Passover and at Pentecost since the time of Israel, that's where it starts to become a problem, particularly when you say, if you don't observe those things. And Galatians escalates and says, if you don't fulfill the law, there are false teachers saying, Paul condemns them, you have no part with God. Gentile, if you don't get circumcised, if you don't observe all the rituals of the law, you're not a Christian. That's making something that God has said is fulfilled in Jesus a test of salvation, and that's where I think there would be a problem. But if someone said we're going to celebrate the Feast of Booths, I don't think that act in and of itself is the biggest issue, but there's probably some connection there. Anything else? No B-O-O-T-H-S. 
Uh, it's also called the Feast of Tabernacles. It's also called Sukkoth, S-U-K-K or S-U-C-C-O-T-H. That's the transliteration, I think, of the Hebrew word. Yeah, it's in Leviticus. Is there what? It's it's a Hebrew word, I think. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think the simplest answer might be, and I again, it doesn't say. This is just a potential answer. I think you have the people of Israel, potentially people who are part of the church, although that depends on your understanding of things with the tribulation, rapture, and all that thing. Um, but uh, as far as unbelievers, the simplest explanation would be who's wiped out is the soldiers that go up in battle. Their families are still at home. They become the ones who are eventually deceived at the end of the thousand years. I don't know that that's the answer, but that would probably be the simplest answer in my mind. Like if the men or women who are soldiers go up against Jerusalem, there's going to be people left in those nations. I don't think God recreates the nation of Egypt, for example. So that would be my tentative answer. Jonathan? Right. Right. And of that remnant, some follow God and some are deceived. So, but yeah, that would be my, my attempt at a really quick answer to that. So. And the Feast of Booze, I mean, Leviticus, the commentator specifically talks about it is celebrating God's protection and deliverance in the wilderness. Sure. So it's specifically for the people. It's not like we couldn't, right. you know, look at it and celebrate God's deliverance as a people, but it's not us. Directly for us. <laughs> yeah, but in this moment, they would be again celebrating God's deliverance. They were surrounded by the enemies. God delivered them, and it would be a very appropriate thing for them to do. So, All right, we'll wrap up there. We'll pray, and we'll head into the service. Father, we thank you for these truths from your word. Lots of things to think about, and like with the passage we're going to look at in the morning service, I pray that although there are things that we want answered, I pray that even as we study those things and try to correlate them with other passages, that our primary focus would be on your goal for us with what the verses say and not our goal for you which is to get all our questions answered and satisfied your goal for us is that if we have sin we would repent if we're trusting in ourselves we would instead trust in you if we are discouraged by present circumstances that we would find hope and see the future you unfold for your people i pray that you would accomplish those purposes in us whether we get our questions fully answered or not we pray this in christ's name amen